Psalm 27. The Lord, says David, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. And if you have a Bible in your hand, you'll see that um, most versions now write the Psalms as poetry, as you notice that also occurs in many of the prophets. C.S. Lewis said, the Psalms are poems, and poems intended to be sung. They're not doctrinal treatises, they're not even sermons. They must be read as poems if, we are to be under, if they are to be understood. Otherwise we shall miss what is in them and think we see what is not. Poetry is a particular kind of genre. So when people say, I believe the Bible is literally true, they cannot actually speak that with authority, because poems are not literally true. They are metaphorical often. That's the whole point of a poem. My love is like a red, red rose. You take that literally, and you have problems, don't you? But metaphorically, it communicates powerfully. Poetry communicates. In answering the question, why bother to compose poetry, David Pawson wrote, poetry has a much deeper effect on people than prose. Poetry can penetrate parts of the personality that prose would leave untouched. And he suggests it goes deeper into the mind. It says, touches the intuitive and artistic parts of the brain. It's easier to remember than prose, especially when set to music. And as our ancient forefathers, uh, the uh, preachers of past generations knew very well, we tend to learn our theology from hymns and choruses. So most preachers in the 1800s actually composed songs too. Amazing Grace was not written to be a number one chart topper, 
It was written to teach theology to his, to his uh, congregation. And that's why we need to make sure that the songs we use to worship God have Bible-based content. It not only goes deeper into the mind, it goes deeper into the heart. Many greeting cards understand that principle. They evoke warm emotions. So consider the following poem. They walked down the lane together. The sky was full of stars. Together they reached the farmyard gate. He lifted for her the bars. She neither smiled nor thanked him. Indeed, she knew not how. For he was just a farmer's boy and she was a Jersey cow. And the point of that is, you see, it moves you. If I said that in prose, it would have had no effect at all. It was a poetry that got you. And it goes deeper into the will. Poetry moves us to the point where we are determined to act in a certain way, which is why armies across the centuries have used songs to galvanize soldiers into action. They sing songs not just to keep in step, but to generate a, a response. Poetry touches the heart, mind and will by me making words beautiful as well as meaningful. So we're drawn to poems because the words are arranged in a beautiful way, such that they appeal to our sense of beauty, balance, symmetry, and proportion. And Paul says to the Ephesians and the Colossians, use them in your worship. Involve yourself with the Psalms. They provide a model of how to address God. And they show us that it's perfectly proper to use carefully formed and prepared speech when addressing God. Some people think we rather not use liturgy, it's old words, but the Psalms are exactly that. Someone else's words that we can take and use to offer to God. Though extemporary prayer captures something of the immediacy of the moment, crafted prayer can plumb deeper depths. So each is a valid way of coming before our Heavenly Father, especially when they both draw on revelation of Scripture. And since the Psalms are poems, they are to be read in their entirety. Never tackle a psalm by just one word or verse here or verse there. Don't dismantle them verse by verse, because in doing so you destroy their structure. The best way to do it is to read it through and then meditate on it. Then read it through and then meditate on it. Then read it through and meditate on it until it releases its treasures. This is an I poem as opposed to a we poem. Psalm 50 is a we poem, not Scottish we. That's a first person plural we. And this is an I poem. Uh, and probably it says it's more to be used for personal worship than corporate worship, though you could use it for both. And such psalms give us ready-made material to inform our approach to God in a way that we know he will respond to. So when you don't find you have any words of your own, go to your Psalter, borrow scripture, use it again and again. God is quite happy with that. And it seems to be divided into two portions, divided at verses 6 and 7 between those. It definitely has a change of tone between the two. And because of that change of tone, some people say, oh, this is two songs that people have put together because they have such a different kind of thing, first and second. Well, I bow to other people's understanding of the original languages, but I don't think that's necessary for us to see it that way because I think human nature 
means that often we can be simultaneously full of joy and full of sorrow. Isn't that possible? Full of faith, but worried about something at the moment. Isn't that possible? Or do you find yourself always entirely one or entirely the other? I think human nature is that we can really be a mixture of both, aren't we? Something hits us that floors us, and while we hold on to God, nonetheless we struggle at a certain area. And this psalm picks up, I think, both of those suggestions. So we could say it mirrors the father in Mark 9 who says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. So I think verses 2 and 3 and 12 show that this psalmist is in grave danger. He finds himself in great danger. This is not composed while he's sitting in a coffee shop surrounded by extraordinary coffees and cakes and things. He's actually facing a dangerous situation and yet he can hold on to God. So I think many of God's children throughout history find that life is anything but a bunch of roses. So when difficulty strikes, when trouble strikes, when life becomes tangled or frightening, what should we do? Can this psalm help us? Yes, it can. Here's my suggestion. I have three points for you. don't often have that, do I? Three points. Here's your first. Verses 1 to 6 tell us to gaze upon the Lord and pour out your heart in worship. Whatever you're going through, if it be very, very hard, gaze upon the Lord and pour out your heart in worship. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice his shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. When I think we're faced with something so complicated, so debilitating that we're unable to think coherently, we can't put words together in our prayers, we can't construct extemporary prayers that are fluid and God-honouring, our task is to just gaze upon the Lord and pour out your heart in worship. And I believe, since that is God's desire here, that he will help you do that. You face a situation that has knocked the wind out of you. How many people tomorrow, when they go to hospital consultations to see a consultant, will be given bad news? And while you think about that, have a, word, have a thought for the consultant who has to give them the bad news. It will, it will be like a kick in the stomach. It will, they will be like deflated. They'll, they'll be gasping for breath. They won't understand. It'll be like a physical reaction. They can't think coherently. Probably the, co the consultant will say, did you understand what I said? Let me tell you again. Because they know that something comes down and shutters turn out. When you're like that, this psalmist says, gaze upon the Lord. Pour out your heart in worship to the Lord. Just lay yourself before him. 
You don't have to think coherently. You don't have to think fluently. You don't have to come up with wonderful words and expressions of faith. You just have to come before the Lord. He's not talking about becoming a Levite. He's not talking about becoming a priest. He's not talking about physically staying in the temple of the tabernacle. That was never the intention. Solomon, when he built it, said, even the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. This isn't about coming to church and staying in church all the time and keeping the world outside. It isn't about that at all. He wants to spend his time in the presence of God because he's had an overwhelming sense of this sheer beauty of God which no circumstance will change. Whatever it is you face, that does not change the beauty and character and wonder of God. And that's what David is going for. He's facing real issues, and if you read his biography in Samuel, your discovery faces real danger on many occasions. His life is nearly taken from him on more than one frightening occasion, and he lives in fear. He knows what he's talking about here, but he knows who God is. So be confident of what you know of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And be eager to know more of God. I want to come before God. I want to know God. This circumstance allows me to discover more of God. When God said to Moses in Exodus 3, to his, to his question, whom shall I say is sending us? He said, tell him I am is sending you. I haven't revealed myself so far by this name. Because they couldn't take it, basically. So I've revealed myself by the Lord Almighty. But by this name, I am. Now you're going to discover me. The ups and downs of life allow us to discover more of God. That's what David is wanting to do. So much the same as in Ephesians 1, we find that theology, we have been blessed in the heavenly realms by every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Paul lists out his theology, what he believes. He then explodes into thanksgiving. So his theology, what he believes, results in praise and worship. And the praise and worship eventually will run out and he'll go back to God and say, I want to know more of you so I can praise you more. So theology leads to worship, leads to theology, leads to worship. That's how it's meant to happen. Not that we turn away from God, but we turn to God, knowing what we already know and holding on for more. I want to know you more in this. So I find my prayers for people who are sick or in trouble, constantly this, Lord, Lord, show yourself to them, comfort them, let them know you're near them, whatever else you may do, Lord, let them know that you are near. This is what I seek, he says. And in verse then 7, it changes from David speaking about the God in the third person, you are, to speaking about God in the second person, that he is, sorry, Speaking about God in the second person, you are. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord, he says. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. He's turned his face towards him. It changes now. He's desperate for help. So here's my second point for you. As we sit before the Lord, as we seek his face, as we just pour out our worship, here's the second point. Call on the Lord and pour out your yearnings the heart's yearnings. Tell him what's on your heart. Call on him. You don't have to wrap it up in neat words. You don't have to tidy it up with 
starting in a particular way and finishing in a particular way. They can come out as a jumble. It can be full of tears. It can be full of agonized cries. You can cry on the floor. You can shout and wave your hands about. You can go for a walk in the woods where no one will hear you. But you can cry and pour out your heart to God. That's what David is doing here. Many of the Psalms are not neat, quiet prayers that everyone has to say, pardon, what did he say? They would be rantings. They would be noisy. They would be outpourings of a heart. You can't imagine David saying this quietly. Don't hide your face from me, he says. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Don't desert me now. When I need you. There wouldn't be a need. You know David. He's a, he's, a, he's a charismatic person. He's a creative person. He would have been noisy. Good fun to be with. Don't reject me or forsake me. Oh God, my Saviour, though my father or mother forsake me, even human relationships fail, but God will receive him. He pours out his heart to God in earnest pleading and heartfelt pain. This is reality as we know it, isn't it? There's no pretense here. David knows that God knows his heart, so he's not trying to hide from God the pain and anguish that he feels. He tells God what it is, because God knows it already. Oh yes, we have God's firm and definite promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, but when it's a crisis, doesn't it feel like that? Is that why God said so very often, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Because it will feel exactly like that. When everything around us is crumbling. There's a whole list of verses I could give you, but I'm not going to. David cries out in agony of spirit, hear me when I call. Because the worst thing that can happen in a time of crisis is to feel that God is somewhere else and not where I am. That God has no interest in the thing that I that's facing me. So David calls out, hear me when I cry. Don't hide your face from me. In the midst of his troubles, David chooses to seek God's face and reaffirm his confidence that God will always receive him. It's not because David just wants to succeed and triumph over his enemies and get over that problem and the rest of it. He wants to know God because problems come and go, don't they? We're old enough to know that now, don't we? When you were younger, you thought the problem you were facing will go and then it will all be wonderful, wasn't it? But we've got a bit wiser than that, haven't we? We know that next week it'll be another kind of problem, won't it? Or issue. That's not to be pessimistic. It's just to be realistic, isn't it? That's the nature of life. So it's not just about solving problems. That's what I'm trying to say. It's about getting to know God in the midst of the problems and difficulties. To be sure, he doesn't want to fall into the hands of his enemies. But more than that, he wants to walk with integrity before God. And he knows he can't do it alone. God is his helper. He calls out for that help. He calls out for God. God is his hope alone. We can be free to express. This is liberating, isn't it? This is liberating. You can tell God anything. You can cry out to God in any way, knowing he won't turn his back on you. He won't walk away or wring his hands in impotent frustration. It will be our God. You have been our helper. What he does, practically speaking, will be up to him. But we know that God will be with us. Here's the third point, verse 13. Wait upon the Lord and let him pour strength into your heart. So seek the Lord and pour out your heart in worship. Call on the Lord and pour out your heart in all the yearnings and longings and frustrations 
not a part of it, but also wait upon the Lord and let him fill you with strength. And Jesus picks up this I am, doesn't he, in John's Gospel and lists the kind of way. He's not being exhaustive. He's not saying I am these and but never that anything else. But basically he's saying whatever, whatever you need at any time, I am that God. You don't have to try and work out um, is God able to do this? Will God do this? I am that God. As you have need, so I will show you. I'm the God who can cope with those things and bring you through. I'm the bread of life. Are you hungry? I'm the bread of life. I wonder on what occasion Jim will have to go into another room and get a loaf of bread because you're so hungry for God and the communion service will be totally inadequate in symbolic terms. You'll say, no, no, I want more. I want more of God, as much of God as I can possibly have. Give me a loaf of bread to eat. You don't need the physical bread, we're well fed, but you get the point. Jesus says, you hungry? I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. Don't stumble in darkness. The Lord is my light and my salvation. We don't walk in darkness. We don't have to fear darkness because he's the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. We're safe in the fold because the shepherd laid in the break of the stones and physically protected his sheep from any danger and harm. He's the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. What greater example of love can I offer you than that? I'm the resurrection and the life. Even when this brief life comes to an end. It's not the end. In sure and certain hope of resurrection, not to some disembodied existence in heaven, but to real life with a real body on a real earth forever. I am the way, the truth and the life you can depend upon me. I am the true Vine, you are the vine, we are the branches. Well, thank you, Lord. We, all we've got to do is just stick in the vine, haven't we? Sounds painfully simple, but actually these are misleadingly simple, but wonderfully simple, aren't they? That's all we're called to do. Gaze upon the Lord. Draw our strength from Him. All of God's Word tells us that God is not remote, He's not distant, He's not vague, He's not uninterested. He's the God who involves Himself. Emmanuel, God, with us. And this disciple says here, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Well, the disciples of Jesus saw the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, didn't they? They walked with him, watching him do it. And we have even more reason, 2,000 years on, to see that God is good and he's good all the time. I know the world is in a mess. I know you heard on your news this week of all kinds of ghastly things happening all over the place and Iraq would be one place, and the vicar of Baghdad and so forth. They, they face horrendous things, but they would be the first to say, they would, they would be the first to say, we see the goodness of God in the land of the living. They would. Because God is good all the time. Not according to my estimation of what goodness is, but according to his own. I don't know what you're facing, my friends, but in a group of this size, or any, any group, People face difficulties of all manner of different kinds. They may be the kind of thing you think, well, if I told you, you wouldn't think it's important, but it's important to me. Well, if it's important to you, it's a big deal, isn't it? If it's important to you, it's a big deal. Whatever it is you face, it may be the ramifications, the aftermath of some horrendous thing you've just been through, and you're just still struggling with that. Or you may be facing something this week you'd rather not face. 
And that's true for many people. Many of your friends are not looking forward to this coming week, are they? You know, because they're facing something. They're facing an operation. They're facing a visit to the doctor. Results of tests. They're facing, well, the younger people facing exams and things. And some of them are so terrified by that, it makes them physically sick. People are facing all sorts of things. Where do you face those things? I think, gaze upon the Lord. And just pour out your heart in worship. Don't ask him to fix it first. Just do that first. Just worship the Lord. And draw from him your strength. Then you can call upon him and just pour out your heart on any issue, anytime, anywhere. Tomorrow morning as people go about their work, there are Christians crying out to God in their cars, in the trains, in the buses as they walk, in the factories, offices, schools where they work. Christians are crying out to God in all sorts of places and he's hearing and understanding. And then wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And he will pour his strength into you. That's his promise. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength will rise up on wings like eagles. I've been treated to the flying displays by a barn owl who lives near us. I don't know quite where it lives, but the last couple of evenings I've been watering our plants, a pathetic exercise, but anyway, I've been doing it. And this wonderful barn owl has just come and just give me a wonderful flying display over the two fields, just for ten minutes. Beautiful. Rise up on eagles' wings. Run, not grow weary. Well, maybe that's not what you need, but you can certainly walk and not feel faint. The Lord will strengthen you, give you strength to cope with it, go through facing God. Not so much worrying about the solution to the problem, but knowing God in the midst of it. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? Let me pray. And Father, we are not privy to each other's private lives, though we do share certain things together with one another. And whether we know anything about anyone else's life or they know anything about our own, we bring to you the issues that face us that are already part of our lives or will become part of our lives shortly. And we ask, Lord, that you will be our light and our salvation, that we will be able to look to you, that you will help us to do the thing that you desire most of all, which is to bring ourselves before you. Not prostrate in agony, Father, but just in devoted love to know that you are God. And what's more, you're our Father. And you wrap us in your love and receive our heartfelt worship. That we can pour out our hearts to you whatever they may contain, Father. And know that you listen and you hear and you understand and you wrap it all up in your love. And we just lie before you, Father, waiting upon you, sometimes not even able to say what we need to say. For all of us, Lord, may we experience a filling of your Spirit in such a way that we will be strengthened this week to go through this week walking with honour and integrity before God, not having the solutions to the questions that we may face, but knowing that you are with us, wrapping us up in your love, that we may walk in love. And who knows, therefore able to speak words of hope, comfort and love into the lives of other people. 
for your sake. Amen.